like you to take a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. If you brought a Bible, that's a good thing. If you didn't, there's a black covered Bible on a chair around you, and this is on page 944. Would be good for you to turn to it. We'll be looking at it carefully this morning. I'm referring to it a number of times. Romans chapter 8. Romans is the the first of Paul's letters in the New Testament. There are 13 that are all in one section, beginning with Romans and ending with Philemon. And they're in that order, if you ever wondered, because they go from the longest to the shortest. It's not because of when they were written or what the topic is or anything like that. The longest one is Romans. The shortest is one chapter, letter to Philemon. And I just want to read three verses, verses 28, 29, and 30 in Romans Chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. As we depend upon food to eat, we also are told that we must depend upon your word in order to nurture our souls because it tells us things that we could not know on our own. We can know about your existence and about your power just from custom in our culture. And because we look outside and see the things that you have made, all of their wonder and majesty, and we know intuitively that there's a God of infinite power, and yet we could never know the things we need to know, how you relate to us, what you require of us, unless you gave us your word. We pray that as we look into it, you would open our minds and you would give us both challenge and comfort from what we find there. And give to us, as a result, a desire to live for you out of gratitude. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're thinking together for a few weeks about the identity of those who are Christians. And when I say identity, I mean our self-perception, what we think about ourselves, how we treat ourselves, how we present ourselves in relationship with other people, what should distinguish our character and our behavior. Identity is something we build as we go through life, and we take different tools that we're given and put it together. But for those who are Christians, our identity ought to be based on what God says about us, what he teaches us about himself and about ourselves in relationship to him. And this morning, I want to focus just on one word primarily that is in this passage, and it is the word called. It says in chapter 8 and verse 28, the first verse that I read, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we want to ask, what does it mean to be called? This isn't a subject most people think about very often. Why is it significant? Why is it a word that we just read over and we don't even really uh, grasp what it means in its context and why it's there? Now, I want to start by saying that sometimes in life we describe things Not as they really are, but just as they appear to us. And the best example of that are the words sunrise and sunset. Because we know 
that even though we might say, I woke up early this morning and I watched the sunrise, or last night, did you see the sunset? Even though we say that, we know that literally those things are not true. The sun does not move. The sun, in fact, is at a fixed point relative to the earth, and it's the earth, the planet on which we live, which is moving. We're revolving around the sun every 365 days. And every 24 hours, our own planet revolves on its axis one whole time. So we are moving hundreds of miles an hour, thousands of miles an hour around the sun in order to accomplish that in a year. But we don't have that perception. Our perception is we are in a fixed point. And we watch, and in the morning, the sun comes up over the horizon. We watch it move. First a rim of light, and then eventually the whole orb there, we can watch it move across the sky, and then we watch it disappear in the west in the evening. And and the fact is that even though our meteorologists list today's sunrise at such and such a time, and sunset occurs at this time, We don't refer to it that way because that's not our perception. That's not how it appears to us. In the same way, what I want to note is that when we think about a person coming to faith in Christ, we see it from our side, which we should. And from our side, we are only experiencing a tiny part of what is going on. Unlike sunrise and sunset, which literally are not true. They are only the appearance that we have of what is happening. Our coming to faith in Christ, we do experience certain things, and the Bible does not tell us they are not true. They are true. They are only completely uh, inadequate to explain everything that's going on. And uh, here's how we often think of it. We think of it uh, like this little diagram on the left side. When a person comes to faith in Christ, what happens is we experience an understanding of the gospel. The gospel message, God's message of redemption in Christ comes to us, and we begin to grasp what it means. And as we understand it, we begin we see that we have uh, sinned and that God, uh, the penalty for our sin is death and that God has provided in the death of Jesus Christ in our place, he's provided a way for our sins to be forgiven. And then we come to understand that there's something required of us. This is often called the call of the gospel, the message of the gospel. And that is we have to personally apply this truth of the gospel by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. And what happens is, when I look back on my own life, when a person who's a Christian looks back on his or her life, we see that as we heard and understood that, which may have been in one message, one time as we heard it, or may have been over a long period of time, as we came to understand it, faith arose in our hearts, and we believed it for ourselves. And at that point, the Bible says we receive salvation. I put the title to that, Appropriation. Looking at it from our side, we are seeing this deposit that God has given this message and we're applying it to ourselves and we are receiving the benefits of what Jesus did. And there's nothing untrue about that. It's very true. But the Bible tells us that there are other things going on, things that are going on on God's side. And when we see it from God's side, it looks very different. It looks something like this. The idea is that God has provided in Jesus salvation, which he then applies to individual people. So 
On God's side, we have to think of application, the application of redemption to the life of an individual. God takes the salvation which he purchased for us in Christ, and he applies the benefits of it to us by effectively bringing us to himself. Now, both sides are presented in the Bible, but the one we think of and the one that we think without uh, reading the Bible carefully, we think that the first one is the one that is talked about the most. Obviously, it's, it's what we are responsible to do. We must hear the message of the gospel, understand it and believe it. And yet when we read the Bible, and this might surprise you, we find out that it's the second that receives the most emphasis, excuse me, particularly in the New Testament. That is God's work on his side of applying salvation. If he didn't tell us what was going on from his side, we would have no understanding of it. We would only see it from our side, and, and we would experience it only from our side, which is very important, but it's incomplete. If the Bible didn't tell us about that, then it would be kind of silly for us to delve into it and even think about it. We'd be exploring a mystery that God had left open. But instead, we find out that God's sight isn't hidden. It's spoken of all over in the New Testament. And these verses that I read a few minutes ago are are one of those places where it's spoken of. What you have in these verses is you have kind of an unbroken chain in which things are linked together that tell us the movement of God's work, the things that he does in applying salvation to us. So look at the the next two verses, uh, verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, that's the first thing, he foreknows a person. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, that's the second thing, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Today we would say brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also, number three, called. And those whom he called, he also justified, number four. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now there are five things, like five links in this chain uh, of what God does. You see the chain? Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. The middle one is calling, and it's one that we usually just skip over, but I want to think about it for a few minutes and how that ought to shape our perception of who we are and of how we relate to God and how we ought to live now. But before we come to look at that, we need to understand it in its context here in these verses. People who read the Bible carefully and reflect on it, And many of you as well, you might realize that the list that I just gave and that are listed in this passage seems to be incomplete. For example, there are other things that happen when a person comes to faith in Christ. One is, to use a theological term, regeneration. That is, God imparts spiritual life to a spiritually dead person. His imparting of that life, eternal life, his quality of life by the Spirit is one of the steps in God applying redemption to a person. But it's not listed in this passage. There's also things like adoption, God making us one of his children, which is part of it. Uh, Faith and repentance, sanctification. We have to note that what we have in this passage is simply one skeleton outline where Paul pulls out the most important actions of God He lists five of them to show us that God is the one who applies this to us, and we are the ones who receive it as he bestows it on us. So let's note a couple of things about this chain. The first thing I want you to note is very simple. It is that God is the author of all these things. 
these things that are being listed here, unlike uh, faith, which arises from within our hearts, which we understand in advance and we experience when we trust in Christ, these things, uh, God is only the author of some of them are things, the first two particularly, that are in the mind and heart of God in eternity past, foreknowledge and uh, predestination. The others are ones that we might feel or experience in terms of coming to faith in Christ, but these are God's actions, not ours, these five things. And then a word has to be said about the first one because it's the most difficult in one sense, foreknowledge. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, it says. Now, foreknowledge is where it starts. And most people assume naturally that the word foreknowledge means to know in advance. And so this is what is often thought, that what God did is eternity, in eternity past, he looked forward, and he saw an individual, and he saw that that person, if presented with the gospel, would believe it. And so on the basis of what is called foreseen faith, God looking forward and seeing their faith, he chose them to be one of his own. And that is, uh, to many people, a very comforting idea. Oh, now I can understand this action of God, this choice of God, that it's not arbitrary. It's not something I can't grasp. It's based on something that God saw inside of me, that he used as the basis for his choice. Unfortunately, I have to tell you, that is not the meaning of the word. That would be foresight, not foreknowledge, the way the Bible uses the word. Foresight is simply the fact that God sees everything in advance. He sees everything that will ever happen from the future of this moment. That's foresight. But foreknowledge, in the way that the Bible uses the word, is not simply to know something in advance. It's to make it true in advance. In other words, to choose That may sound very counterintuitive to you, but let me explain to you what I mean and how the Bible uses it. The first thing we have to note about it is the word knowledge, to know. The way the Bible uses the word know, starting in the beginning of the Old Testament and then unfolding very powerfully in the Old Testament and picked up in the New, the way it uses the word know is not simply to be aware of something or someone else, but it's uh, it's referring to a deep kind of friendship or companionship. So, for example, one of the first times it's used in the beginning of the Bible is in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 starts with these words, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. Now, it's using the word know there as a euphemism for the intimate physical relationship of marriage out of which children may be born. Adam knew his wife Eve. It's not only used that way, so I don't want you to get stuck on that one, but obviously the word know there means more than a passing acquaintance. It's referring to an intimate knowledge of another person and enjoyment of relationship with another person in the deepest way that humans can conceive of it. It's used that essential way, a deep kind of companionship throughout the Bible. So, for example, come to the New Testament in Galatians 4. The Apostle Paul writes to believers, now that you have come to know God, comma, or rather to be known by God, it's a very interesting uh, sentence because it's almost like he corrects himself. He says, you know God, but he wants to make it deeper in understanding for people. He says, well, what's really important here is that you are known by God. 
Now, I can use the word no in many different senses. And as a child, I wanted to know God. And I would think at the time I thought I knew God. I mean, I knew that he existed. I knew that he was separate from me. But I didn't really know anything about his character. I didn't know what he required of me and the kind of relationship that he wanted with me. But that occurred when God, using the Bible's phrase, came to know me. And it's describing a close relationship, a companionship between two. So foreknowledge is God's looking forward, and he thinks of me, he thought of me in eternity past, in deep relationship with himself. As one who has reconciled him to him and belonged to him, God in eternity past thought of each believer in a saving relationship with himself. And he determined that that's what it would be. And the rest of it unfolds from that point. Let me note a second thing about that. And that is that all, uh, the Bible never assigns a reason for God's foreknowledge of individuals. Note that in the passage, it's the foreknowledge of persons, not of things about persons. He didn't foreknow what you would do. That's foresight. He foreknew you as a person, an intimacy of relationship. And the Bible never assigns a reason for that. In fact, it denies that there is anything inside of us that that was the basis on which he determined to enter a relationship with us. God says to Israel in a very clear point in Deuteronomy, It is not because of you that I made you my people. It's not because of anything inside of you. It's not because you are a bigger nation, a better nation, or anything like that. But it was due to my own purpose. That's kind of deflating. If I could think that God looked forward and he said, there's something I like in Tom. You know, and so I'm going to choose him on that basis. Then at least I could understand it. But if he says, I'm not going to explain why, but I set my love on Tom in eternity past. That's a little bit frustrating. Raises all kinds of questions. But it denies over and over that you can assign any reason to God's foreknowledge. It's something inside of of God. It's his grace. It's according to his eternal purpose, it says. And the last thing I want you to note is that the Bible teaches this over and over. Here's another passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want you to note that in this passage, it also is giving kind of an an order, though it's much shorter, of the application of redemption, the things that God does. But here he uses the word choose and the word called. Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there he puts God's choice and his calling together. And it's essentially the same, even though the elements are different. God is the one who applies salvation. It begins with his determination, and then it moves along to that point where he calls an individual to himself. Those, it says in Romans 8, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That's the second one. And that troubles people too, but this one's easier because it says it's the purpose for which he foreknew us to begin with. He predestined us to be conformed 
to the image of his son. In other words, God's purpose from the very beginning, from eternity past, was that he set his love upon us in order to do something inside of us that would conform us to what Jesus is like, not what he looks like, but what Jesus is like in his character and his behavior and everything that goes on in the Christian life after a person comes to faith in Christ is part of that process in which God is conforming them to the image of Christ. And then he says, though whom he predestined, he also called. There it is, right in the middle. He also called. Now, this is the first step you might say we experience, though we don't think of it as calling. It's part of what happens when we hear the gospel. We begin to understand it, and faith is awakened inside of us, to use the Bible's terminology. When that happens, we are being called by God. And what does that mean? Well, to explain it, I have to explain that there's two different ways in which the word call is used in the Bible. Well, there's actually many different ways. Most of the time, it's used in just kind of a general way of one person calling another. It's a common word that we all use in our language as well. But when it's talking about the relationship between a human being and God, and the word call is used, it's used in two ways. There's um, a couple of times in the New Testament where it's used to refer to the gospel going out to everyone who hears it. What I mean by that is a, a person hears the gospel in one of many different forms. It may be that he goes to a small group and, and the leader is talking about this as they're looking at a passage. It, it may be that he sits down with another person, as I remember at age 19, sitting in the student union at Michigan State, and a, a person, a man that I had met there, was going through and explaining the elements of the gospel to me. It, it may be preaching in a service like this or whenever it is, there, there comes a point where the gospel goes out, this message. The message of the gospel, we're told, is Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15. That's the gospel. The call of the gospel is what we must do with that. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Those two things have to come to us, both the gospel message in its simplicity, as well as the application of the gospel to us, which is faith in Christ. And, and we have to personally apply it to ourselves. Now, the gospel call goes out to many different people. Some ignore it. Some understand it but turn away from it. Some believe it. The gospel call in general is just going out to everyone who hears the gospel, reads it in a book, hears it on a podcast, whatever it is. That's the general call. The problem is the Bible uses the word call once from the lips of Jesus, and maybe once, depending on how you understand it, from Paul. It's only used twice that way in the Bible, the general call that goes out to everyone. The other times that it's used, over 50 times, in the relationship of God and an individual, the word call, like in this passage, is referring to the specific, effective summons of God to an individual to come to faith in Christ. It's what happens when the gospel message goes out. And for some in the room, as they are hearing it, they're bored to death and thinking about what they're going to do later and some responsibility later in the week or a problem with their child or whatever it is. And others are listening with attention. And they're thinking about what's being said. And as the person is speaking, they come to trust in Christ. That happens, the Bible says, because God calls them to himself. It happens when the message of the gospel, 
about the death of Jesus and his resurrection and faith in Christ, when it is combined with the work of the Holy Spirit, who is capable of penetrating the human heart with that message so that the person makes a personal application, no longer simply understands the words of 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in some general sense, but, oh, this applies to me. My sins are forgiven because of Jesus and what he is. That is the effective call. And that's the way the Bible uses it, the New Testament particularly, over and over again. Um, over 50 times, along with the word of the outward call, the Holy Spirit effectively makes it real in a person's life. Now, this is, I just want to show you a few verses where this is found. The first one's in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Peter writes to believers, and he uses a number of phrases that refer in the Old Testament to the people of Israel, and he now applies them to believers today. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. On the day of Pentecost, the first time the gospel was preached by the apostles in the city of Jerusalem, Peter preached, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And we could go through a dozen more. I mean, these are all verses that are in the past tense. Believers are told we should look back and we should see and rejoice that God called us to himself. Now, I'm saying that that call is more than this, just a general call. This, in every case, is an effective call in which God's summons was responded to. How do we know that it's effective? Well, back to Romans chapter 8, as we're looking at. Note, he's got these five things. Foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, glorified. And it's an unbroken chain in which God does these things, and each link inevitably needs, leads to the next one. So if you think of foreknown as happening in eternity past before God created anything, God in eternity past foreknew individuals for himself, and if you think of eternity future in which those who belong to him, the redeemed, are in the presence of God, they will be glorified. And each of these things unfolds what is often called the application of redemption. This describes God's side in relation to us. This is the things that are going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. The first two happen in the mind of God before he made anything. The others unfold in time during my life and your life in which God works in us in a certain way to bring us to himself. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. There's a famous passage in the New Testament where Jesus himself describes this at length. And he uses an illustration in John chapter 10. And that illustration is about himself being the good shepherd. It's a fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament. 
But Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens in the images of a uh, place, a gated place where sheep are kept at night in safety. And then they are let out during the day. The gatekeeper opens for the shepherd as the shepherd brings his sheep home from out grazing during the day. And Jesus says, verse 3, to him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, John writes, Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then picking up on verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And again, he's describing a situation in which the call of the shepherd is effective because it connects with the individual sheep. In this case, when God summons us to himself, he summons us into this knowledge kind of relationship in which he summons us into close companionship with himself where he is our God and we are his people. And over 50 times in the New Testament, you, if you're a Christian, are referred to as the called. Those whom God has effectively brought to himself. He's summoned you out of darkness and into light. Now, how should this shape your self-perception? What does this tell us about who you are and what you should feel about yourself and how you relate to other people? Well, the first is that it is meant, it should keep you from any sense of pride in your salvation. You can never say if this is true. I guess that God saw in me a desire to know him. And so he responded to that desire by reaching out and connecting with it and bringing me to himself. I, I might, uh, a person might say, I was interested in spiritual things from childhood. And I have to tell you, that was true for me, kind of inexplicably, because I remember as a teenager, my father told me a story. This story went like this. When he was young, his uh, father would drop him off at church and go play golf. Not every week. I know my grandfather went to church some, but this was a common experience for my father. He told me his father would give him a dime to put in the offering plate. And uh, one thing I can tell you as a side, he told me he would go buy an ice cream cone for a nickel and then put a nickel on the offering plate every week, you know. And um, this is what he said. I was sitting in church one Sunday, and the man was preaching up front. And as I was listening to him, I thought to myself, I don't believe a word this man is saying. And he never did for the rest of his life. And I remember having him tell me that, and I thought to myself, as I feel to this day, I want, I I believe in God. Like the first time I heard of God as a little child, I don't know where I was, but I I heard about God apart from us. And I I thought, I believe in God. I, I want to know about God. Though it was many years before I did come to know God, I could think to myself, I guess I was just different. Some people 
are born with a desire to know God. It's just something that's inside of them. And then you would feel like, that's why I know God, because I wanted to from the beginning. God said, Tommy, he, he wants to know me, and so I, I'm going to bring him to me. But the problem is the Bible forbids that. The word called tells us that it's an effective thing that God does inside of us. It is meant to reduce us so that there is no pride involved. There's only mystery. There's only mystery. It's not because of anything inside of us. It's because of God's purposes and grace. I can't say I was just spiritual. I was better. I was different in some way. The truth is God set his love on me long before I was even born. He thought of me in eternity past as one of his own, as one in friendship, in companionship with him. Now, as I moved through life from that point forward, I did many things, good and bad, against God. I thought things about God that were totally improper. But as I moved through life, despite the choices I was making, God so arranged my free choices to lead me to himself. He graciously moved to the point where I heard he, according to the words of the Bible, tore away the blindness that I had to understanding the message of the gospel. He opened my heart, Acts 14, to respond to the things that were spoken to me. And at a point in time, he showed me my need and his provision for it in Christ. And the Bible would say he effectively wooed me, persuaded me to come to himself so that I did. Now, the Bible says this, left to myself, I wouldn't have lifted a finger towards God. I wouldn't have understood a thing, understood a thing that was said to me. The Bible says, Psalm 53, repeated, quoted in uh, Romans chapter 3, no one seeks for God. That means left to ourselves, without God doing anything behind the scenes that we don't perceive, no person would seek for God. However, empowered by the work of God, enlightening and awakening and all of those things, he led me to a desire to seek him. He awakened me to do that. And in fact, these verses that we're looking at in Romans chapter 8, they say something even farther than that. If God foreknew me, thought of me in eternity past in relationship to himself, and if he then called me to himself at a point in time, he will also do these other things that are unbroken links in this chain. In fact, he will do everything. He will arrange everything in this world to result in my ultimate salvation. Isn't that what it says? Verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. And what is the good? Is the good simply that I live a comfortable life? No, that's not the good. That might be good to me, but that's not the good that's being spoken of here. Does it mean that I'll have an enjoyable life with few problems? I'll find parking spots when I need to at the right time so that I'm not late for an appointment? Is that what it means? Well, it may mean that on some level, but that's not the good. The good is defined in the rest of the verses, which is my ultimate glorification. God works everything together for the end result that I will be someday in his presence for all eternity. Glorified sin and the guilt of sin and the power of sin completely removed. 
so that I no longer struggle with it, but I live in freedom to rejoice in God and to serve him for all eternity. That's what the chain tells me, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. I'll be free from sin, along with all who belong to him, singing along with all the saints, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all that because I'm called. Now, if you are a believer, this is true of you. You're a person who has trusted in Christ. You are one of the called. You look back and recognize that on your side, you understood the gospel and believed it, and God saved you. But God was working inside of you long before that, from the moment of your conception, long before that, in eternity past. When he saw all things, he foreknew you. He determined that he would make you like Christ. And in your own lifetime, at the right time, he summoned you effectively to himself. So as you move through life, you're meant to identify yourself that way. I belong to God because of his work, because of his purposes in Christ. And what he intends to do for me and in me will result in my ultimate salvation. Let's give thanks to God. Our Father in heaven, we praise and thank you that you are the God of grace and of glory. We thank you that the gospel has been kept alive all of these centuries as people who have experienced its power have gone out and they have talked to others, to their children, to their co-workers, to their friends. Churches have been formed as believers have realized they live in proximity in a community and they've joined themselves together to do this. You have sustained your people, through the centuries. And now, at this moment, we are here, a church, a gathering of the people of God. We want to be faithful to you, but we want to acknowledge that we are here by your purposes in Christ, not because of works that we have done in righteousness, it says in Titus, but because of his mercy. So we come to you and thank you for that. We pray that you would so build our sense of who we are as individuals and as a group that we might display your grace to other people and to each other as we move through life. And we pray in thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.